Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a very exciting time for me today because my guest is somebody in the world that I've never, ever done a show like this before with a guy who does what he does. And he's probably going to be sitting here wondering what's going on because, as you know, I do a cold open that sort of relates to the guest and I never know what I'm going to say and they have to sit back and look at me and not say anything and wonder what's happening and how long is this going to keep going on for and can I look at my phone? The answer is no, you can't look at your phone. But firstly, I want to thank you guys for all your support. You're amazing. The emails, the texts, the FedExes, the support has been incredible and I'm very, very grateful and I'm very excited to have my guest on today, Barry Rudin. And this is very unique because I'm a berry. You don't get to meet a lot of berries. <laughs> and you get to talk to a lot of people who are really big and great in the business. But Barry's in a different side of the business. And if his name sounds familiar to you, it should. Because he is the owner and CEO of Barry's Tickets, which is one of the largest ticket broker companies and service agencies in the world and especially here in Los Angeles. And one of the things that amazed me about Barry when I first met him was that he wasn't what I thought he was going to be. And I think that in our world, a lot of times people say image is everything. 
And here I am saying that, and I'm literally <laughs> wearing a shirt that Liberace donated to a thrift store somewhere, and I must have picked it up. But Barry is just a regular guy. He's a guy who, when I met him, you don't think of him as an owner and CEO and entrepreneur. He comes in and he's just wearing regular slacks or for the old people out there, dungarees, just some nice shoes, but nothing special suede. He's got socks on with stripes of colors, probably not found in nature. He's got a polo shirt on and just a regular guy. And I thought when I was going to meet Barry for the first time, because it was hard to get Barry to do the podcast because he's a very busy man. And not that everybody else isn't busy, but I think he didn't really understand what he was getting into and what he was doing and why I wanted him. But I wanted him because I love these podcasts because they touch on the entertainment industry. And Barry is a huge part of the entertainment industry, but in a different kind of way. And when I look at him, I think to myself, there's different philosophies. Like Dick Clark's philosophy for artists, if he saw an artist come to his show dressed like Barry, or Kurt Cobain, or Eddie Vedder, or James Taylor, he would say, kid, dress better for your shows. And they would say, well, why is that, Mr. Clark? Because if you dress like your audience, one day you'll be sitting there with them. And that was his philosophy. But Barry's is different, and it works for him, and it works for the way the world is changing. There's nothing wrong with wearing a suit and tie and going out there. You're never going to get hurt by doing that. But you also want to relate to the people who you're dealing with. And I think when I look at Barry and his world and how he does it. I think the story that comes to me that I want to tell is one that shows the world how it used to be. So when I was growing up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, I made a deal with some people who lived in town to take care of their cat while they were away for a month. And I moved myself into their house at 15 years old. It was my independence, but I was still close to my family. But I would go to school every day and see them if they came over, and that was that. So when I was a young teenager, I was very independent. I had my own home because they'd go away all the time. And as it started, probably 10 months a year, I would do this. And... I did a great job at their house, and the housekeeper had come, and they called them and told them what a great job I was doing and how fantastic it was, and I was so excited that I was doing a great job. I had my own independence, and then I was listening to AM radio, and I heard the announcement, Elvis Presley is coming to the Springfield Civic Center. If you want tickets, they go on sale tomorrow at 10 a.m., at the Springfield Civic Center box office. And I'm listening, waiting to hear other ways I could get my tickets, but that was it. In 1977, I'm conflicted because that day is the day that the people come home from their trip to the house. 
So I stay up all night. I clean the house. I get everything right. I feed the cat. The cat has this freezer full of steaks and chicken. They spoil this cat. I've got everything taken care of. I vacuum. I'm working like a madman to make this place right before I take the bus to the Springfield Civic Center at four o'clock in the morning because I wanted to get there early. I thought if I can get there like six hours early, I'll beat everybody. I can come back in time and finish the rest of this house because it's not quite ready yet. And I want it to be perfect for when they get back at seven o'clock. And so I get up at four in the morning. I'm excited. I think I'm going to beat everybody. Who in the world could possibly think that they would get up this early? I'm going to outsmart everybody. I get there at 4.30 in the morning, and there is a line around the stadium and down the block and down another block, thousands of people. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I thought that the early bird catches the worm, but that's not true because I learned that day that in your personal life, business also applies. You can think that you're going to outsmart the other business person. You can think you're going to get up early enough and they're not going to do it, but they do. And so I say to every artist out there and everybody, if you listen to the rest of the story, it'll have a purpose. It might not seem like it has a purpose now, but it will. So I'm waiting in line and an hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by, four hours go by, and the line's moving, but I'm not that close. It's two o'clock in the afternoon and I got responsibilities. These people are coming home. They're giving a responsibility to a 15-year-old kid. More hours go by. I can see the ticket office, but now it's 3.30. Like, what do I do? Do I get out of line? Do I go home? I don't have a cell phone. I go to the pay phone. I ask somebody to stop for me. I'm calling. Nobody's picking up because there's no answering machines in 1977. And I haven't left a note at the house. But I make a decision which haunts me to this day because I did something with the hope that I'd be able to create a better relationship with them after this. I stayed in line and I got my ticket to the Elvis Presley show at midnight. I get done. I get out of line. I call the home at midnight to them. They were furious. They couldn't get a hold of me. They didn't know what was going on. They were very angry with me. I begged them to meet with me the next day so I could explain my dilemma. And they allowed me to. And I was able to sit down with them. And the guy admitted to me, even though it was wrong, if I had to do it all over again, and I was in your shoes, I probably would have gone and gotten the ticket and come and met with me and tried to clean it up. And so that meant a lot to me, even though I felt it was a decision that could be wrong. And I went to see Elvis Presley, and it was one of the greatest moments of my life to be there before he passed away and to see the show and to be a part of that kind of entertainment world. And my tickets weren't great. 
and I always wondered how could I get better tickets? Couldn't there be a system somewhere that someone could create where anyone in the world could be able to get a ticket to a show, regardless if it was sold out, regardless if it was an hour beforehand, wherever it was. And my guest today is a guy that helped pioneer that and create that here in Los Angeles and in the world. And usually my stories have some kind of a point to it. And I think the point I want to make about this as it relates to Barry being an entrepreneur is the fact of this. If you're anybody in business and you want to get where you want to go, you need to figure out what the other people are doing. If a 15-year-old kid from Longmeadow, Massachusetts gets up six hours before the tickets go on sale and he can't beat 2,500 other people from all areas of Massachusetts, then I'm doing something wrong and I'm not thinking well enough in business of how to beat the competition, how to get to the next level, because it made me realize at a very young age that no matter what I thought was going to put me in a position to win, it's not enough probably. And you have to figure out what to do to where you can one-up the other people and you can be in a position in line to get those front row seats that you want. And how are you going to do it? And how are you going to make it happen? And so if you're out there in business, that's what you need to do. As I talked about with Magic Johnson, it's about over-delivering. As I talked about on other podcasts, it's about being undeniable. As I talked about many times before, it's about creating holy shit moments. As I've talked about many times before, it's about creating a fucking problem to where people have to figure out how they're going to navigate to beat you. On that day in Longmeadow, Massachusetts in Springfield, I didn't do that. I thought I did. Granted, if I'd have gotten up at 10 o'clock, I wouldn't have gotten any tickets. I got the ticket. That's the success story. The thing that isn't a success story is the fact that I lost a relationship that I had to gain back trust with and my tickets weren't great because I didn't beat the other people and figure out how to navigate. So please, if you're out there, I think the best thing to do is always, if you think you're getting there too early, get there an hour earlier. If you think you're doing too much, do twice as much. And I guarantee you, you will have a great career and you'll be in a position to where you can own your own company someday. Like Barry Rutten. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. 
Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very happy today, very excited because my guest is the CEO, head honcho of the full-service ticket agency by my name, Barry's Tickets. I love that. I always go to this guy's place probably because of my name. It was Harry's Tickets or Larry's Tickets. I wouldn't do that, but Barry's tickets, I go and I love it. And the service for me is unbelievable. And most people would think that you're here because this is some kind of commercial. It's not. Mm -hmm. I'm here because I've never had anybody 
who is in the entertainment business on this side. And there's a lot of things I want to know about and a lot of questions I want to ask and a lot of things I want the audience to learn about and your story of how you started to where you are now. But before I get started, I'd like to give Barry the proper introduction. I also want to thank you guys for going to the Amazon banner on the website. Every time you click and order anything from Amazon, it's wonderful. And it helps my boys go to college and it doesn't cost you anything. So I appreciate that. All right, here we go. I'm going to give him an introduction. Hopefully he won't glaze over. Barry Rudin was born and raised in Southern California and is the founder and president of Barry's Ticket Service, a full-service ticket agency dedicated to the world of entertainment through concerts, sporting events, and theater, and is considered a pioneer, a leader, and an innovator in the ticket industry. Barry's Tickets is the largest season ticket holder for the Lakers, Clippers, Kings, and Dodgers. He does huge theater events like Phantom of the Opera, The Lion King, Wicked, Book of Mormon, and of course the Broadway smash Hamilton, which will be coming to the Pantages next year. Barry's Tickets is also a sponsor of the Los Angeles Clippers, and in Southern California, they work with the Hollywood Bowl, Staples Center, the Greek Theater, and the Pantages. These are all venues that Barry has supported and grown with throughout the years. His company carries a large selection of concert and theater tickets to venues not just locally, but nationwide and worldwide, holding several season tickets outside of Los Angeles, including the Portland Trailblazers, the Golden State Warriors, and the St. Louis Cardinals. And they also specialize in the World Cup, the Olympics, the Super Bowl, the NCAA Regionals, Final Four, and other national and international events. Barry has aggregated and acquired three Los Angeles ticket brokerages since he started and has consistently grown into one of the largest branded ticket services in the United States. Additionally, Barry has many philanthropic interests and supports multiple charities and was given the Humanitarian Award by the Harold Pump Cancer Foundation for his generous contributions. And he's also a member of the Boardroom Associates, who raises money for the Heart Foundation at Cedars-Sinai. Barry's Tickets donates tickets to numerous nonprofits, such as the Boys and Girls Clubs, the Children's Hospital, and numerous youth charities, which has led him to be one of the most respected people in his business. Please welcome my guest today. I'm very excited, Barry Rudin. That's a very nice introduction. Thank you, Barry. <laughs> you are welcome. How are you, man? I'm good. By the way, I named it Barry's Tickets because I did not think I was going to be a ticket broker when I started. I was just a school kid and I was doing it while I went to college. You know, I never thought it would become a business. I thought I was going to be a liar. I mean, an attorney, sorry. <laughs> and There's I, a lot of liars in this building here. Yeah, a lot of attorneys. And I ended up, uh, it turned into a business, twist of fate. So I think your story is a great microcosm of all businesses. You have to outwork. Magic Johnson will tell you. I guarantee you that Steph Curry gets to the gym before everybody, shoots more three-pointers than anyone, was a son of a player, and outworked everyone. Granted, he had a God-given talent, hand-eye coordination. He's the best shooter I've ever seen, but he had to work. And with me, I... Combine work with luck. 
I've all, you know, I, I probably worked, I lived my business for 25 years. Um, with my first marriage, we'd be on a date and I'd take calls because that's what I thought I had to do. The only thing that I've learned from that, that I, and then I'll go back to other thing is, it's always good if you want to, if you're in a position to start a business, hire people that are smarter than you. Hire, hire, I didn't do that in the beginning. I tried to do it all myself and I hired people and I had to work so hard because to keep it all together. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes from Lauren Michaels, which I say probably too much, is that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yes, I agree with that. So, and you know, there's all different types of intelligence too. So, you know, I, I can't do anything that my IT guy can do, but he can't buy, sell, and make business decisions that I can do. So it's, you have to create a, a great skilled company and there's specific skills that everybody has, but you know, in the big overview, just you always have to do the right thing. You have to outwork your competitor. You have to always tell the truth or do the right thing because the tortoise always beats the hare. I, I believe that. I believe my business grew. And what happens is you grow, grow, grow. And then all of a sudden there's this huge mushroom effect because you did the right thing. If you don't do the right thing, if you're defensive, if you make excuses, when you make a mistake and it's a human error, own it and people forgive. It's when you start to make excuses. Oh, I'm so sorry, your ticket. We did deliver it, but we really didn't. I would never say that. I would just own it. Hey, we made a mistake. We're going to give you your money back and we're going to give you free tickets for the next show. And we're so sorry. That client tells all of his friends that, hey, nobody's perfect, but they do the right thing. So I'm going to give them another chance. What's your biggest high profile fuck up that you ever had that you had to clean up? And do you feel like you ever fully cleaned it up or do you feel they went to somebody else after that? Honestly, nothing comes to my mind. Nothing? No, no, I'm because there's nothing huge. There's nothing huge. I mean, I would say we've always delivered. I, the difference between the way I run my business and the way some competitors run their business. So I'll give you an example, Super Bowl. Okay. So two years ago, um, the Super Bowl, the tickets were selling for two to $3,000, depending what time. Because once one Super Bowl ends, you price the next Super Bowl. So maybe for 10 months they're selling and they're fluctuating, mostly for the cheapest ticket, $2,000 to $2,500. Um, and lower level end zones, corners, three to 4,000. That's a big bulk of what gets resold in the secondary market. People do contests, rewards, so they just need a ticket to get in. Define for our audience the secondary market. The secondary market is the second time you sell a ticket. So the primary market is when it goes on sale to the public from the box office or a season ticket or a promoter, that's primary, the first time. Secondary is when it's sold a second time. So with the Super Bowl, I think less than a couple hundred tickets actually get sold to the public. It's in a lottery system. You've got to understand millions of people want that ticket. All the other tickets go, every team gets, depending on the size of the venue, six, 700 people. They get, every team gets that. They give two to every, every player gets to buy two. Coaches, depending on their deal, gets four to 10. People who work for the team, sponsors. 
there's deals with ticket aggregators who do sponsorships and they if they pay X to a team in sponsorship, you have the right to buy Y in tickets. So let's say a team like, let's say the New England Patriots, they yeah. get 500 tickets, let's say. Okay. They have to buy them if they want them. Yes. And then if they don't want them, they just throw them back in the pool to be sold or do they just take them and... You mean the players on the team? Yeah. Okay, well, Mr. Kraft controls the Patriots tickets. And they're not the greatest example because they generally go to the Super Bowl, so they actually get 17, 17.5% of the venue. But let's just say the other 28 teams, um, they get what they get. The owner decides how it goes. But the standard is every player has a right to buy two. If they don't buy it, the owner gets to do whatever he wants with those tickets. And the face value of the best Super Bowl Well, last ticket. year, 3000 was the most expensive face value. And that was a front and row. And the cheapest was 850 No, not front row, like club level, lower level, club level between the 30s. I've yeah. sat in the front row for a Super Bowl, and it happens to be probably one of the worst well, seats. I, no. See, I have a story on front row. So I met this guy at a party that, my, that Troy Aikman's agent um, threw, and it was Troy Aikman's party in Phoenix. And he worked, he represented a cigar company and he brought, you know, his wood thing with all the cigars in it and he was branding and giving everybody a free cigar if they wanted it. And my friend said, this kid needs Super Bowl tickets. If you want, um, if you help him out, he'll totally take care of you. He's a good guy. So I talked to him. He says, yeah, I'll take care of you. I'll have cigars for life. And I was really enjoying cigars. I still am a good cigar smoker. And he I said, wait till Saturday or Sunday. I promise you I'll get you two seats because I thought the market was going to come down. At the time, it was a pretty expensive ticket. How does a market for a Super Bowl come down? Okay, so that's, so that's why I You're went, back to, so I went back to two years ago. Okay. Two years ago, it's a um, two, again, two to $2,500 ticket. Now, that's kind of a low entry level price historically for the Super Bowl. So lots of people bought them. Um, it was in Phoenix. The last two Super Bowls in Phoenix, no, it, they were terrible. They started off strong, and the price just kept going down and down and down. It's all supply and demand. So it started at low pricing this year. The third year time, it's in Phoenix. Because every broker, every speculator thinks that, every secondary market seller thinks it's not that strong. Seattle gets in. The year before... It was in New York. Seattle didn't go there. They didn't buy tickets. It was low demand. So you had a team that you felt didn't travel. And you had a venue that didn't sell two Super Bowls in a row. And it was New England and Seattle. I mean, so you're thinking, oh, well, New England's not coming. They've been there already twice to Phoenix. They, they have no interest in going. So what happened was Seattle bought all the travel packages. So lots of brokers, lots of people took orders. On StubHub, if you're a, just like eBay, if you're a, a seller they trust, you could put, hey, I'm, gonna have, I'm guaranteeing you an end zone seat before you get the tickets. Don't forget, the tickets for the Super Bowl don't get distributed till 30 days before the game. And you're taking orders for 11 months before that. So you don't actually have your ticket in your hand. So it's a promise. So between StubHub and Ticketmaster and Vivid and all these big exchanges and every broker, every reseller, Every company, everybody who wants to promise somebody a Super Bowl, they were promising them thinking, oh, this one's not going to be strong. Well, all of a sudden there became a shortage. Seattle, everybody from Seattle was coming. And the people who took orders, all of a sudden there's no tickets. Now, as a ticket broker, as a ticket reseller, as eBay StubHub, 
if you promise a ticket and you take somebody's money, you have to fill it. The law in California, I know, is if you don't fill an order, it's three times the amount plus their travel expenses, plus your reputation. StubHub can't not fill an order. They could call you and try and buy you out of filling the order, but they have to get the ticket. So supply and demand, people just uh, were short. So that two, $3,000 ticket, people were paying $10,000 for. So anybody who had tickets that didn't take the orders, there's an extra 7000 a ticket for them to make. At that point, there's not as many tickets in the market. That's why there's a shortage. But my theory, if I think I'm getting 500 tickets, I won't take orders for more than 250 because I never don't want to fill it. Now, there's been times where, I mean, there was a time, I remember, we bought tickets directly from Ticketmaster. They luckily have an office across from Staples Center. They canceled the purchase for some reason, don't know, double sale, they made a mistake, didn't alert us. Our client bought the ticket from us, went into the building, I mean, tried to go in the building. The other person who bought the original ticket got in first. So they first go to the box office. They say they bought them from us. They send them back across the street. We found them replacement tickets. That's happened before. There's things you can't avoid. You did that for me once. But we do, again, nobody is perfect. Every single business makes a mistake here and there. The best businesses make mistakes here and there. It's how you handle them. We replaced them. Your replacement tickets were better than the other ones. That's what we usually have to do, yeah. We want you to be happy. I am happy. I'm glad. So take us way back to growing up in Southern California, what kind of family you grew up in, and what was your first inspiration? What was the thing that happened to you that let you say to yourself, I want to be in the entertainment business through ticketing? Well, I grew up in Tarzana basically from age five and pretty sheltered, normal life of a um, valley, valley kid. Uh, my mom was a dance teacher. My father was an equipment, le you know, had an equipment leasing company. I had an older brother and sister, pretty good student. And my sister, the first time I ever had any experience with tickets was my sister dated a scalper named Orson from Minnesota. She met him at a shoe store in Westwood, the wild pair that she worked at. Now, just in case our audience is not familiar with the term scalper. Could you define that for us? Okay, so scalping is actually a trespassing violation. And it's somebody who goes out to the street, has a sign or doesn't have a sign, hey, need tickets. And he buys and sells on the street, as opposed to a ticket broker who has a license to resell tickets, is in an office, is accountable, etc. And when I was a kid, that was the only way to get tickets, was to go to the stadium an hour or so beforehand and just hear the people, and then they'd say, come here, kid, and you'd hush in the corner, and, and these are the tickets. You wouldn't have a map to what the stadium was. You didn't know what anything was. Mm -hmm. And you just he asked you for a certain amount of money, and you negotiated back and forth. And right. got now it. you can get an email to your phone as you're walking into the venue. That's it's right. changed. But I think in Los Angeles, the ticket brokering business started in the 20s, and they would give some money to the local theaters to be able to produce and put the shows on. And for that, they got preferential treatment on the ticketing. And then they also bought season tickets for the, the various sporting events. But that was before our time. So my sister dated this guy, Orson. I'm 15 years old in 1979. And he takes me to the Laker game where your friend Magic Johnson comes back 
from his first injury. I, again, never scalped a ticket because that is what I was doing. And he said, hey, just go up to people. Hey, do you have extra tickets? Do you have extra tickets? And I was always very good with numbers. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I sold stickers, candy, gum, fireworks. I always had to hustle because I was never given any money from my family. I had to make it on my own. Um, but he taught me how to do it. And I made $130. And this nice man took me in 10th row center court. And this is at 15 years old when minimum wage is probably $2 an hour. So just so our audience is clear, yeah. when you go there to scalp, you go there to buy the ticket from a scalper. No. From a, let's say you're a season ticket holder, Barry, and you have four tickets. Yes. And your kid canceled on you in the last minute, and you have two extra tickets. Yes. And you come down there, and I say, hey, you have extra tickets. Everybody walks by. You have extra tickets. You have extra tickets. If you have two extra tickets, and you see this nice 15-year-old clean-cut kid, compared to most of the scalpers that you saw out there, okay, um, you might stop and say, yeah, I have a couple of tickets. What will you pay me for them? And I'll offer you below what I think I could resell them for. And I'll buy them, pay you, and then go and sell them. So I bought, sold, bought, sold before the game started. Um, and I made $130. And then I remember right before the game started, this guy said, oh, I have one. And somebody goes, and I think Orson, this is my, this was, gosh, how many years ago? 36 years ago. I, I think he said, hey, why don't you take the kid in? And the guy looks at me and goes, yeah, okay, kid, come in. And he took me 10th row center court. Now, prior to that, I never sat in the lower level before. When I would go to a Dodger game, it was in the bleachers. It was for camp, Valley Cardinal baseball camp, or whatever camp I was in. I, my family didn't have very much money. I mean, I, got, I was fortunate enough to be able to live south of the boulevard in Tarzana, but no, I didn't get a car when I was 16. My parents didn't buy me things. I always worked and hustled and made my own money. I remember in sixth grade, I sold stickers and candy and gum and a Britannia, which was the popular jeans at the time with a leather pocket was $28 and I bought it myself. You know, there was no way I was ever going to, my parents were ever going to give me money for that. So I guess when you have to do something, you're more motivated and I was hungry. My kids, unfortunately, aren't as hungry as I am, but <laughs> you know, hopefully it'll be easier for them and they'll hire smarter people that I didn't do and learn from my mistakes. But I respect and admire everyone who makes it on their own and the people who work hard. And if you're fortunate enough to have a family who started the business, then your job is to grow the business. If you want self-actualization, if you want the respect of the community. How many of your three kids who are, I believe, 18, 20, and 22 or something 20, like that? 20, how old are you, Josh? 23, 21, and 20 now. What year did you get your television set? Jesus Christ, you pumped them out there. So are they Great working kids. with you in the business? No. Well, one is. <laughs> They're not growing the business. No. Well, my daughter, my youngest, is an honor student at Boulder, mm -hmm. and she's more of a creative person, and she's in the film school, so she might be in your industry or in the film industry eventually. Everyone who goes to yeah. Boulder never wants to leave. Yeah, well, she's coming back. Anyway, she wants to save the world. So I, if, if, she, if she could control her destiny, she'd do documentaries that save the world, that heal people through food or whatever. But she's a dancer. She's a photographer. She has so many talents. I don't know where she got them from, but she's incredibly talented. My middle one um, would like to be an actor. So any of my friends out there who want to give him some parts, please do. Um, and in the meantime, he does some social media for us, and he's been doing a lot of extra work. He's been getting, you know, he's been getting some work here and there. 
and my oldest is in commercial real estate, but he's got some entrepreneurial spirit and he's been buying and selling mobile homes in Adelanto, which is right near Victorville. How did, how did this kid come go to Adelanto? I That's don't know whole, where Adelanto or Victorville is. Victorville's halfway. It's on the way to Barstow, on the way to Vegas. Got it. So, so about two hours from here. He buys and sells mobile homes, the drivable Little, ones. small. No, 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 no. Actually, they're, they're, mob, they're homes. And trailer parks. But he doesn't have an association because in Adelanto, they're not in a big association. So they, most of them have like a 7,000 square foot lot. They put a one or a two wide trailer, which are... You know, you have you. They're movable, is why they're mobile oh. homes, but they're not the driving kind. Got it. You know, they're the permanent ones. What's and, the average price of oh, a mobile home? In now they're selling. He he has one in escort like ninety nine that he bought for like sixty. But when he started his first house, he bought for. I mean, you learn things. His first house he bought for twenty three thousand. He was taught by this guy, who a whole nother story. It's like a Robert Kiyosaki story because that's who the guy learned from. And so he taught Josh and all these kids how to play this game. And it teaches you business. So then he took Josh and took him to Adelanto. This guy did a lot of stuff in Needles, which is where all three states meet. And they went and they bought a house for twenty three grand. And he told Josh it would probably be about seven thousand dollars to fix it up. It ended up being another. He ended up having fifty thousand dollars into it instead of thirty thousand dollars into it. But rents were like eight hundred dollars. So even fifty thousand dollars to rent something for eight hundred a month is really a good return. One point six. It's $9,600 in a year on 50000 If you collect all of that, it's an 18% annual return, which is fantastic. But not, you didn't leverage the mobile home. He bought it. So, but Josh learned. I mean, his first person, he goes, oh, she's an older African-American lady, and she's a nice lady, and she gets Social Security. And I go, okay, well, that sounds really good. Because he taught him how to go to the town early in the morning watch, go into the donut shop, talk to people, get to know people, see, go talk to the local policeman who's out there and start networking so that you could find renters. So I'm thinking, okay, good. Josh is learning the right things. He's going to learn about the community. So Josh rents to this lady. She pays the first couple months and then he's not paying. I said, Josh, you have to Victor. You have to do something. You know, I have friends who are property managers. Go talk to Carl. Go talk to Lou. They'll teach you how to do an eviction. He lets it go. He lets it go. You know, four months later, five months later, he finally starts the eviction process. And I'm talking to him, so tell me, what he left out about this renter is that she had a tattoo of Batman on her face. (laughs) So, you know, there are signs that you have to be a little more careful who you rent something to, who you do business with. And, you know, that was just, that was a little bit that he left. He left out that small thing, but he's (laughs) learned so much at a young age that he's a lot smarter now. He's, and now he's, you know, he bought him, he bought a couple at 60 that are, he fixed up a little really quick and, been able to sell him for like 99. So I'm proud of him that he's doing that while he's working at Illy Commercial and Encino doing commercial as well. So awesome. he's getting there. I'm just thinking to yeah. myself on the side, guys and girls, mm-hmm. they see a woman walk into a restaurant or a bar or whatever, <laughs> and she has a tattoo. They'll play this game. Like, what right. does that mean? Like, what does it mean if a girl has a tattoo <laughs> on her finger? What does it mean if she has a tattoo on her arm? What does it mean if she has a tattoo on her chest right above her breasts or whatever? What does it mean if she has a tattoo on the lower part of her back? And they go through these games. What does that mean? What kind of person is she? I can't imagine what somebody would say if a girl walks in the bar with a tattoo of Batman. An older woman on her head. I don't know what that means. On her face. Mike Tyson, but Batman. I think what it means is I have lost a bet. 
<laughs> I think that's what that means. Anyway, but jo- Josh, my older one, he mm-hmm. might want to someday take over the business. We'll see. He's got to show it. me a little more. Got it. And so you're inspired by you this know, guy, Orson. He shows you what to do. Happened once. And my sister stopped dating him. I'm 15 years old. I can't drive out to the forum from Tarzana. So until you're, I turned 16. So you're saying to your sister, could you just touch it so I can get more <laughs> of this? I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, well, I might have thought that, but I was only 15 and pretty innocent. Um, anyway, at, at 16, I got a car, and um, which I... How did you get a car? You had no my, way to make I, money. I, I, had, I made a little bit when I was always selling stickers and candy and gum. I sold fireworks every... I wrote a paper. The guy said, if you get me a beer better, this is in ninth grade, I'll give you this adver- this um, U.S. sales or whatever it was. It was in North Carolina where you could buy fireworks. And back then, a brick of fireworks, if you ordered from them, was $6.50. You get 80 packs, so a little over $0.08 cents each. And they'd sell for a dollar each. So I would make a 1000 or two. I did get a B-plus on the, on the paper. He gave me the thing. I started ordering them. And I would sell fireworks. I'd make a thousand to two thousand every Fourth of July. You know, it was illegal, but but that's a once a year deal. No, no, but it was a couple thousand dollars. You have to understand, my first car cost forty two hundred dollars. It was a nineteen seventy nine Camaro three hundred five. Mine was yellow. a seventy seven Camaro, <laughs> cost two hundred dollars. Okay, well, um, it was before though. Yeah, mine was I think forty two hundred. My stepdad lent me some money. He didn't have very much. He's just a generous man. I paid him back in one year. When did your mom divorce from When I was 12. 12. Yeah. Are you still friendly with your dad? He passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. But I would be. Normally, you get the vibe from people you sit across from that these events that happen, when you're 12 and your parents get in the divorce, that's like somebody blowing a hole through you. But I don't have the feeling of that with you. There's something in me that survives everything. So... um, Things happen. I mean, I was sued when I was 23 years old, I think it was. Well, let me figure out. No, it was, I was older than that. Because my son, before my first son was born, in a little over a year, he's 23. So well, I was probably 26. And I got sued by Ticketmaster. And that's a, it was a pretty big company. And the guy who ran it at the time was not a very ma- nice man, Fred Rosen. We should have settled right away for what it was. it was. It was pretty innocent from my point of view. But he was trying to make an example of me. But all I did was put my head down and work harder, you know, and pay the lawyers. And eventually, a year later, 13 months later, it settled for less than what the magistrate originally said we should settle it for, and it went away. But it was very scary. But you just have to work through everything. So my, you know, my parents got divorced. I can't control that. I got lucky. I got a really good stepmom and a really good stepdad. And you got along with your stepdad? Yeah. I, my stepdad works for me. He works yeah, for Yeah, he's you. our driver. So... Yeah, he's our driver. He's 75. He just had his 75th birthday. We went to the Magic Castle. It was amazing. amazing And I'm not a Magic fan normally, but he just, he got the best sleight of hand guy I've ever seen. And this very funny other guy. We still have no idea how the sleight of hand guy got potatoes under those cups. We have no idea. But it was a great party. Um, And I'm, I'm proud of him. He's a wonderful man. He's a kibbutznik. So he's the guy, he'll give his shirt off his, off his back for you. He's the sweetest man, you know. So I was lucky. And my mom's an innocent salt of the earth. I don't think she's, I think she's probably had one drink her whole life. Never had a cigarette. You know, just a clean, good role model. 
Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So you start selling fireworks and everything. Yeah. And you, you, well, that's how I bought the car. And you bought the car. And, and then now I, what? Then I would drive to Dodger games. And I wasn't really doing it to make money at that point. I had other jobs and I always saved. I was always somebody who was scared. It wasn't going to be there the next year. So I always saved. And I'll tell you another thing I would recommend everybody. Never spend more than you make your whole life. Because then you get yourself in a position where your money can make money for you. And I never spent more than I made my whole life. So that's how I was able to save and get there. And I, anyway, so I started scalping tickets with Dodgers just to get better seats and just once in a while. And I just went back to normal life. I went to school. I got good grades. Um, I was good at cramming. I wasn't really good at studying. I mean, the per the carpool person who used to take me, she told me I never brought my books home, but I think I had two copies of the books. I'm not sure. Um, Anyway, so, you know, I, I was just nor having a normal life. And then my father had a major stroke my senior year of high school. I was supposed to go away to Berkeley. I couldn't go away to college. So um, the summer between high school and, and college, I was looking for a job. And my friend had bought tickets from Superior Tickets, who used to be the general manager of Murray's Tickets downtown, but he was right across the street from Taft High inside Boulevard Music. So we went in and he basically, Hey, we're looking for a job. I'm looking for a job. He goes, well, we don't really hire people. You know, it's a private business, you know, unless we really know you. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm a nice Jewish boy from the Valley. I'll get you a hundred references. So he let me scalp his tickets. So when they had leftover tickets the day of, I'd go down there. And again, because I was a nice kid and clean cut and pretty assertive, you felt comfortable and you'd buy the ticket for me. I wasn't, I also told you the truth where the ticket was and I didn't sell you two singles and say they're a pair. And, and I would make a third of whatever I, whatever I got. And I would actually tell the broker the truth and bring him back what he'm supposed to bring him back. It really wasn't fair to me. Because it's a cash business. Yeah. And most scalpers actually got 50%. So I was being taken advantage of a little bit. Um, I went and, and then October of 1982. So then I went to junior college because that, that was my options. I didn't apply anywhere else. So I went to Pierce College. Um, and while I was there... October of 82, I remember I waited in line for the first time with my same friend, Jason Kerner, who now lives in Northern California. Um, and Neil Young went on sale at the Gibson Amphitheater. Now, it's a, it was a universal amphitheater back then. And what they used to do, kind of your position, they put you all on a um, concrete on the pavement, and they would stamp your hand, and you pick into the basket a number. And out of 1,500 people, I think I had number 75, and he got number 80. And I even remember my six seats, 5mm, seats 7 through 12, and they were $15 each. And this guy, Hal Ornstein, who he has probably has more stories than me, he actually owns the shoes, the ruby red slippers from Wizard of Oz, because he does that kind of stuff now. Um, he bought them for me for $27.50. I made $75, six tickets you're allowed to buy, $12.50 a ticket. I'm like, wow, that's a lot. You know, that's pretty good. You know what? I'm going to get people to wait in line for me. And I was, I got to be, I started bringing people, paid them $20 to wait in line for me. I did my thing that I learned. Hey, do you have extra tickets? You have tickets? I would go, Hey, what number do you have? What number do you have? Because let's say you went with a few friends and you're each allowed to buy six tickets, but you only need four tickets because there's only four of you, but two of you got good numbers. There's a good chance that one of you would let me pay you 20 bucks to wait in line for me and buy the tickets for me. So I started doing that. And then I would sell them to brokers. 
And I would, meanwhile, I would still scout, I'd scout for them. And then there was another ticket agency in Encino called Ticket Outlet, and I became friendly with them. And I'd start selling different people. And eventually, Larry Goss of Superior Tickets hired me. I worked for him for five months. He paid me $5 an hour. I think minimum wage was probably three. But I would make for him sometimes in one day, going out there and buying tickets and hustling on the day they go on sale. Because if I worked for him, I had to bring everything there. Sometimes I make for him in one day what he paid me for the whole month. So why after you worked for him once and you got 33% of the profits, did you take a job for $5 an hour? Because, um, no, I didn't work for him once to make get 33% of the profit. I just... Um, no, there was something that. you said that you did one time. You oh, went. no, no. I went there and I started making money and I made, I made a good... Oh, that's on scalping. This is waiting in line for tickets the day of the game. Okay, I mean, when they it. go on sale, like got what it. you did, like you should have bought six Elvis Presley tickets. You should have brought them back and said, look, I bought them for the family. We're all going to Elvis Presley. That's he would why, have forgiven you quicker. That's why you're in the position you're in. And I'm <laughs> sitting in front of a microphone at right. lunchtime. So I took advantage of the opportunity and I learned how to do that and realized, hey, these are worth more. And so I took the job because I was an insecure kid and they made me feel good. And I actually learned a little bit from it. And, but when they would not give me, at first, they weren't giving me any extra money when I was bringing all these tickets in. No bonuses. Not at first. And then I, then I said, but that's not fair. So then he gave me, I remember Supertramp. It was, a, again, a $15 face value ticket. I sent people in line, got a re, maybe it was $25 that it cost me after putting on them. And I had some third row center tickets. And they were worth about 125 retail. The wholesale was maybe $100. So there's $75 there. He'd let me have 30% of that amount. So, and he'd get 70% of that amount. Plus he got the extra retail. So anybody else calls him up and sells him the ticket, he'd pay them a hundred. I got 52.50. Didn't seem fair. I worked for him for five months. I went on my own. Learned a little bit. I didn't take one client. I didn't take, I brought people who, because I knew who friends, parents owned season tickets. I brought them there. I didn't take anybody. I'm still friends to him with him to this day. All right. So how old are you at that point, five months in where you decide I'm going to start my own business? What kind of place are you living in? What kind I'm, of car are you driving? I'm are 18. You, I'm probably still, I'm driving the Camaro. You're 18 years old. Yeah. And you decide I'm going to start my own. Well, I'm just going to do it services. myself. Yeah. So I did it out of my parents' um, house. house. All right. What was the name of your company? Eclipse. Eclipse. Because that was the name of my friend Jason's band. Okay. Who didn't, he ended up going away to college, didn't stay in the ticket business, wasn't as hungry as I was. Um, and we're still best friends to, to this day. Or, you know, we don't see each other that much because he lives in Northern California, but great guy. So it was Eclipse. And then when I left them, it became Barry's Tickets. And I did. Wait, what do you mean when you left them? When I stopped working for Superior. Yes. I changed, I made a card that said Barry's ticket service. Oh, I thought when you left. No, before that it was Eclipse. How could you do something before that when you're working? Because for the they didn't hire me for a few months when I was buying tickets and selling them, putting little ads in the classified ads, etc. But you're 18 years old yeah. and you start Barry's tickets. Yes. What do you think's going to happen? What's your vision? I like think, when you see, because sometimes okay. I want to share this with you. Yeah. Like, like it might not relate to you as much as you would think, but. I wanted my kids to see the X-Files. They wanted to see the new ones. I said, no, I want to show you the pilot episode. And they're watching the pilot and they love it. 
But I'm watching and I'm thinking something else when I'm watching Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny. What I'm watching is when it goes to a break, I'm thinking, God, after that scene, I wonder if they went to their trailer and were just sitting across from each other saying, God, you think this is going to get picked up? You think there's a shot that the network's going to pick up the show? And all these insecurities, and then 25 years later, it's an iconic show. Did you have a vision that you were going to be where you are now? No. No, not at all. I was going to go to college. I ended up going, keep, I kept going to school while I did this. I was selling tickets. I joined a fraternity. I was selling tickets there for a little while. Actually, I didn't join a fraternity. I started a fraternity, and then I didn't stay in because I switched schools. But I went, to, I went, and then I eventually I got a scholarship to USC. I kept doing this, making money. I had a goal of saving $50,000 by the time I graduate college, which was a lot of money back then. And then, you know, you could set goals, you could have all these ideas, but things just happen. You have to make them happen, but things just happen. And the, in 1984, the Olympics came to the U.S., the Soviet block, the Soviet block boycotted the Olympics. Their tickets went on sale that at Santa Anita Sport, um, Santa Anita Racetrack. And I learned a little bit about the Olympics and I ended up making at 19 years old, $46,000, saving most of it. I just kept making money and saving it and reinvesting it in tickets and growing and growing, still not thinking I was going to do it. I, like I said, I thought I was going to be a liar. I mean, attorney, sorry. So you're 19, you profit $46,000 in that one Olympics. Mm -hmm. over 28 two. in the Olympics, 46 in the year. Oh, 46 in the year when you're 19. Yeah. Okay. So it's probably a quarter of a million now in today's dollars. Yeah. And so you're doing your thing. And so what's the next step for you to figure out how to get to the next level in your business? Well, what do you so that, so I'm, I hire people to, I hire people to answer the phone for me. I'm putting ads in the classified ads. I keep buying tickets. I but keep learning. But you only learning. have $46,000. That's how a lot hire, of money back then. How do you hire then? somebody that works for Paying kids four bucks an hour. Okay. I was paying college kids four, five, six bucks an hour. Okay. And um, I just kept doing it and kept, I, I just kept doing it and building it, building and building, doing it. Bought my first house with my sister and um, now best friend, but ex-brother-in-law. And we split the house and I started doing it out of the house. How old built, were you when you bought the house? I think I was 20 or 20, 21, 21, 21 half a house. and you bought your first house. Yeah. For $210,000 on Dolorosa and Woodland Hills, 22745 Dolorosa street. So, um, yeah, that was the first one. And, and so you put an office in your house. I put a, we, we built, I actually, I'm not good with my hands, <laughs> but my brother-in-law was, so he had me help build this room. That and we enclosed it, and we did we did a lot. I learned how to do molding, and I learned how to do a lot of stuff that I never normally would do. But he wasn't the type to just do it for me, so he wanted to make me learn. So that was pretty cool. That was probably the last time I did manual labor, but I've done a lot of volunteer labor, you know, passing out meals and such, but not actual, you know, skilled labor. But I've worked hard. But you have no computers then. You have nothing that you're... Everything. I, first of all, you did have computers. You did. I had a phone that was like the size of a briefcase back then. A mobile phone. A mobile phone. You carried it like a briefcase. So I did have that. I, cause I, yes, I, they did have phones then. They did have slower computers. So anyway, so I kept doing it, right? And I'm going to college. And 
I'm now doing it out of my apartment on Sutton and Sepulveda, which the other lesson I want to teach the viewers is if you're living in a place that there's a lot of escape routes. So we're at Sepulveda, just south of the boulevard. You could go Sepulveda, north, south, the Ventura Freeway, east, west, and the 405 north, south. There were so many escape routes. There's a good chance somebody's going to break into your car or somebody's going to rob you. Or so, there's a sign on the building that's plastic that says, say habla espanol. Yeah, that's another one. This was actually south of the boulevard in Sherman Oaks and a really nice new building that my two roommates moved in with me and I would drive down to SC. So we're living in this apartment and I'm a senior year. I got a scholarship to USC. I'm going to be an entrepreneurial major. I have seven classes left to graduate. I'm on my way to a midterm and the girl who works, works for me, nice girl. I said, this guy keeps calling me and putting expensive tickets on hold. And there's a lot of stuff before this that I'll go, you know, maybe the stories will come in, but, and he doesn't show up and it's weird. Like three times he does this in like two weeks. What tickets do you have? And he calls, I'm on my way to midterm. He calls me right before and um, does it again. And I say to her that, I said, you know what? Don't let anybody in today. It's a secured building. She didn't follow that. She let them in. She had the safe open. Three guys came in, two with baseball bats, one with a gun. Told her to wait in the bathroom. She left the safe open. They took $40,000 in tickets and $10,000 in cash, most of what I had. Had a little more in the bank. And I was on an associate scholarship. She wouldn't come back into the apartment after that. So I had a choice. I could either stop doing it and just take my hit and finish school, or I could drop out for one semester. You could keep your scholarship and then go back. So I made the decision of I better keep it going and answer the phone myself and, and I'll eventually finish. And USC was $12,000 a year back then. Phantom of the Opera went on sale with Michael Crawford. The tickets were $50 face value for the good seats. I was wholesaling them to good time tickets to different places, getting about $135, and they were selling for like $200 retail. It was just the biggest show ever to hit LA. It actually lasted in LA for four straight years, which is still the longest running theater event ever in Los Angeles. This is fascinating. So yeah. you're at your lowest point. Yep. Everything's stolen from you. Yep. The girl working for you won't even come back. Mm -hmm. You have nothing. You can pack it all in, but you just said, I'm going to go forward and I'm going to make it work. How did you? What, how I did don't you... know. I don't, I don't think I had a choice. I either have, I mean, I had a few thousand left in the bank. I probably had $10,000, maybe even a little more. I don't know. I don't remember exactly, but enough to buy the Phantom tickets and keep flipping them. I just, I liked making money. $1,000 a day. A day. A day and USC was 12 grand. So now USC is probably 60 grand, 50 to 60 grand. So there's your, there's your comparison. So I just kept doing it. I go, you know what? I'll go to school. And then I, then the semester finished. And then I go, you know what? I'll just go next semester and I'll just pay for it. And then I met my ex wife who was studying for the bar exam. I said, okay, I won't be a liar. I'll marry one. She unfortunately never really become a, she passed the bar, but she never really became a lawyer. She became a mom. And then now she's a yoga teacher. But that kind of was like, oh, well, you know, I'll just make this work. I thought for a while I would just go back to school as soon as the run ended. But it never ended. And she'll tell you to this day every year, I don't know if we'll be here next year, so we have to save because I have no idea if it's going to be here next year. 
And I did that probably for the first 15 years I was in the business. And then it just really grew and became branded and it became much more of a business than. So you're in your teens, early twenties, you're making between 200 and 400,000 a year. Two, two-ish. Yeah. That year was a little over two. Yeah. I didn't make a thousand every day. What kind of car did you drive then? Oh, see, I'm so conservative. I think there was one point where I did my, okay, after the um, Olympics where I made, and that year I make 46, I have $46,000. And I think, um, you know, most people would just go and buy a sports car. I was going to buy a Corolla or a Mitsubishi Tredia. (laughs) (laughs) And I bought the Mitsubishi Tredia because it was a better value car. I just was never about things. I was never showy. I, it just didn't define me. I needed, I, I needed more of the security of the money. The one thing I love from the earlier, the way you're dressed. It's a John Varvato shirt. Oh, no, it's beautiful. Give him some credit. But the watch, <laughs> you got the mother of pearl face, which this I This was my divorce present. Oh. I never bought myself a watch before, but my friend Brent Polachek, Polachek's Jewelers in Calabasas, mm-hmm. was wearing it. We went for uh, my 51st birthday with, and, and my friend Anna's 51st, well, no, she's only 42, her birthday. Mm-hmm. And he was wearing this watch. And we got really drunk and, you know, maybe a little high. And I said, Brent, I'm, I'm buying one of those. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy that. I didn't ask him how much it was or anything. It was a lot more than I ever expected. But when I say something like that or I do something like that, if I can, I usually, I mean, 999.9 out of 1,000, I'm going to keep my word. And I bought it. He didn't care if I bought it or not. But I said I was going to do it. And I just did it. And it was my divorce present. And that's my only fancy watch I've ever had. I got to buy myself a divorce present. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> yeah. Normally the divorce present is her present. That's what happens. Oh, she, she, my ex did pretty well. But right, we're so. both happy and I have a beautiful fiance, Lindsay, that I want to give a shout out to. So. Yeah, I met her. She yeah. Probably without Lindsay and your good friend Larry Schoenfeld, I probably never would have gotten you here today. Yeah. She yeah. came up here for our first meeting. Yes. She was basically wearing the Hope Diamond on her finger. It was unbelievable. It was the size of Rhode Island. Don't tell her it's Cubic Zirconia, please. I won't Don't, tell her. None of you guys tell her. I can just imagine her getting drunk and high with a friend, seeing a friend wearing that diamond, saying, hey, I want that diamond for my marriage. Well, well Jody Polachek is one of her best friends, and her diamond's bigger. So there you go. Yeah. What is it about? I don't know. The so, diamond industry is the best marketing of any industry. That's another thing I want to talk about you because you just mentioned something that's kind of fascinating. So you're married, you have three children, you get a divorce, and then you're an amazingly successful guy and you decide, I want to get married again. I'm sorry to use a tired reference because I met Lindsay and she's amazing and I don't want to say that she's not amazing because she is amazing. And so I'm not talking about that. Whether the woman is extraordinary, average, or homeless, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. that a man decides he's going to get married again. So the plane that he got on crashed, (laughs) okay? But he lived. Yes. But it crashed. No, I get it. I feel your pain. But he gets back in another plane again. How do you make that decision? Well, you can't be scared. Not every plane crashes. But I, I actually broke up with, we broke up five years earlier than my ex. And I didn't like being single. I dated beautiful women, um, much more beautiful than when I was before I got married. Because when you get older, there's a longer, there's more years and more variety. And I have some success and way more confidence than when I was younger. But 
I just, I'm not a player. I'm not interested in a casual thing. I don't know why I'm that way. And so even after it didn't really work out and my ex and I at that time really didn't like each other the first time, I'm such a family guy. I was really felt, I, I didn't feel myself not being with my family. I mean, I remember I would, I spent way more time with my kids during our separation before we thought we were going to get divorced the first time than I ever did while we were married because I just, I was at a loss. So I gave it, I, I gave it my all to try and make the marriage work. I did everything. I stopped working hard. I started doing yoga. I did everything I could to keep the family together and it just wasn't meant to be. And we parted when we agreed to finally really get divorced. We were going to be really good friends. And, you know, that hasn't fully worked out yet because the process of a divorce, even if they're both really good people, the process of one lawyer telling one person you're supposed to get this and the other one say, well, they really are only entitled to this, that chasm between those, those what each attorney tells the person is usually pretty vast. And until they get into the middle and settle somewhere, it's it can get pretty bad and pretty ugly and pretty nasty. And then there's jealousies. And unfortunately, I will still say that the mother of my children is a very good human being, but it's not as um, we're not friends yet again, but we will be. I always say happy ex-wife, happy life. I, yeah, well, probably happy wife, happy life too, but I couldn't, I couldn't manage that. With Lindsay, I will. Okay, wait, here's the thing. So I like the family environment. Uh -huh. Lindsay has two great kids. Uh -huh. That's another thing. You started over again. No, because you you we them. have them half the time. Uh -huh. Their father's involved. Uh -huh. So I'm just this really great, nice guy who helps their life, makes their life better. And, and Barry and I have my children and I will always have my children. They will. And I got lucky. My sons, my daughter's way at college, but her kids are adorable. They like each other, but they don't see each other that much. But my sons and her kids, they get along great because the age difference. And my, my kids are really good hearted, loving, wonderful people. So it's going to work out. All right. I know it will. Now yeah. you have this vibe about yeah. you. I have to say this because this okay. is something that I found is a very successful thing for a lot of people, but a lot of people don't understand it. So when I sit across from you, you have this way about you that's like a gay man could be sitting across from you <laughs> and feel like he's got a connection with you. And a straight woman can think she has a connection with you. You have this thing about you that you could literally travel in both worlds and do business in all worlds and people feel that power about you. Have you always known you had that? I learned that I had that I could get along with all different types of people, but I learned it. I didn't believe anything about myself until I got older. My self-confidence took a while, maybe because of the divorce, maybe because I was a chubby kid. You know, I always knew if I wanted to get A's in school and study, I could be at the top of the class that I, that I knew, I knew I had a gift with numbers and different, different gifts that everybody has, but I didn't know that. And, but through when I was younger and especially when I started in business, I started becoming really good friends with everybody older than me, you know, and I never had any prejudice or racism or anything. I mean, I was, I was born in 64, which is basically the height of the civil rights. So, and I was lucky enough to be born in liberal California 
And so I don't have any of that. So every race creed color to me, I, and I, I, I guess I learned it when I was older. I believe every soul is equal at birth. And then it's what, I mean, granted, I believe in genetics and I believe in hereditary and all that with, with what you're born with, with the skills, but your soul, it's clean. Then it's what, how you live, how you're influenced, how, so I think everybody's equal and I don't know why, but I've always been able to um, get along with all types. And it, it might be because, like you said, I don't have this, I don't know how I'm coming across to listeners, but I don't have this big ego like I think I'm better than anyone. And a lot of people who get a little bit of success, they get like that. You know, you treat everybody right. If you treat everybody right, if you treat everybody with respect, you can get along with anyone. So that's really what it is. So you're doing the Barry's Tickets thing, but you're doing a thing where you're like buying tickets and then going to ticket brokers and services. What year and what time did you decide that, okay, I don't want to be a middleman. I'm now going to really start Barry's Tickets and I am going to be a legitimate company and I'm not going to go and sell my tickets to these other places. I'm going to be the one that okay. people are going to be bringing so, to me. So the first time I actually opened an office outside of my house, the only reason I did it is because it used to be like $1 per line if you put a private party ad in the classified of the LA Times. And by the way, people used to read newspapers for advertisement. Now they don't even, everything you know is internet and online and phones and everything. But back then, it was just as powerful to pay $1 for a classified ad but if I was a business, it was 5 or $10 per line. So I wanted to stay in my house as long as I could. At some point, the Times got smart and they didn't let us get away with it. So I opened an office on Ventura Boulevard. I think it was like 500, 400, 500 square feet in Encino. Well, on Newcastle, Ventura. And it was reasonable enough. And I just put Barry's tickets up there and I continued to advertise. And we started building up a clientele. But even today, brokers sell to each other. I let StubHub sell some of my tickets. I buy from them. We do everything. We're, we're, nowadays, there's not that many full-service ticket brokers. There's probably one or two per state at the most because everybody else now just buys the tickets and puts them on Ticketmaster, puts them on StubHub, puts them on Vivid. There's all these different marketplaces, eBay, Craigslist, whatever. We actually answer the phone we actually service our clients but we do both so we're kind of a hybrid and and we also do seo we do a little bit of pay-per-click we have some web names we have a decent presence on the web so we kind of try to do everything um we you know we're we're we, we're always trying to do the next thing so i started by waiting in line i even you had your sleep out story David Bowie, Anaheim Convention Center. I remember my stepdad, who was an electrician, general contractor, did everything. He had a van. I met these kids. I don't know where. They were all flower children. We're driving. They're the pe- kids that I'm going to have wait in line for me. I'm probably 22, 23, something like this. They're probably my age, a little younger, but they're total. And I'm in the car, and I never had had at that point, I probably smoked pot a few times, drank a little bit, never had a drug at that age. And I'm, I remember driving to Anaheim Convention Center to sleep overnight for David Bowie tickets, who was my favorite of all time. God rest his soul. I 
really was hopeful I could see him one time with my daughter, but you know, didn't happen. And he, I asked the question, so how many times have you had acid? And of that group of people, the least in the car was 150 times. And that's who I slept out with for a day and a half for David Bowie tickets. Cause I did what it took and we got good David Bowie tickets. We made money. Um, you were talking about Massachusetts and how the only way to get tickets is you hear it on the radio and then you go and you wait in line. One of another story, Bruce Springsteen tunnel of love. My friend figured out that at five o'clock the day before he announces it's going on sale the next morning. So if you know that you have a jump on them to get the people in line. So we went, we flew, um, Mark, Mark, who actually works with me now is one of my partners. Um, and this other guy, we flew to, first we flew to Detroit because we knew the next morning it was going to go on sale. We went to a soup kitchen. We hired all these guys to sleep out. It was 40 degrees, which was for a California kid, super cold for them. Not so bad. We paid them 40 or 50 bucks to wait in line. We got the first 20 people in line. Um, I remember the former crack dealer, T-Bone, who was the nicest guy. Um, you know, he's told us a story and he got all the people and he watched them for us overnight. And then we, we came in the morning from our hotel, <laughs> whatever hotel we got at that night, and we gave them the money. They all went in line, bought the tickets, handed them to us, and all of us got, each, each person got six tickets in the first 10 rows. And we made, for what we, for us, a small fortune. The next day we flew to Maryland and that was more like your thing. There was like, we, we went to a fraternity and we hired the fraternity to wait in line for us. There was like 5,000 people out there trying to get tickets for Springsteen for this show. And that one, we didn't get as good of tickets and it was more of a random thing. You know, you, and I, I remember um, they had four windows and you'd go up, you'd go up to the window and you'd get a number in. We'd slide windows and get four wristbands and then we'd move them and we got more. And I, I remember I got 22 wristbands because I was just, I was hungry and, you know, trying to get as many tickets as I can. I got 22 of them, but there were still 5,000 people. So at least we were able to buy some tickets. We sold them, made a little bit of money, but we did whatever it took, you know? All right. So you're growing the company. It's growing, growing, growing. Take me through how you now go national and how then you go worldwide. Then it became Super Bowl, Final Four, World Cup, and the World Cup was not until 94 in LA. And then I learned to do that, so then I went to, I've been to Germany for the World Cup. I was gonna go to Brazil, but we sent a team of people instead. But the Super Bowl, the first Super Bowl was in Los Angeles. It was at the Rose Bowl, it was Dallas Buffalo. I remember we took orders for $425 for a ticket. So now the same, this year it was more like 3000 The year before it was like 2000 but back then it was four and a quarter. I remember I took a order from Lisa at Sports Profile Magazine in Chicago. I have no idea how she found me and, and I can't remember anymore. And we, you know, put ads by to who has extra tickets and we learned and I bought some tickets and sold it and then we do the next city and you'd go there and you put ads in the paper to buy tickets and then you start making contacts and you soon learn with the Super Bowl, you know, the same coaches, the same administrators, they're in the NFL for their whole careers. Well, they're the ones who get the tickets. So the same people get them every year. 
over and over again. So if you buy off somebody one year, well, they're bound to sell it to you the next year. So you build and build and build on relationships. It's all about relationships. The, I don't know if you ever heard of the Pump Brothers, but Dave and Dana Pump, but that that's what Dana always says. It's all about relationships. I mean, he can get Denzel Washington here. He can Cedric the Entertainer, Magic Johnson. And they and I've been, it was the, the Double Pump, the Harold Pump Foundation, their father passed away of cancer. They get 1,500, 1,600 people to their charity event to raise money to fight cancer. There's just two redheaded kids who started hustling basketball, you know, and then they started with AU programs and then they got to know all the coaches. And back then the coaches used to get the tickets for the final four and we know all the coaches. And if you're a head coach of, you don't need to go to the final four to watch two other teams. You don't need to scout at that point. So you sold your tickets and you networked, but that was years ago. It's not like that anymore, but it was just from meeting people and doing the right thing. And then they come back to you year after year after year. How do you feel that your company came into the marketplace when there were other companies that were big and you pass them. How do you feel you've okay. done that? The way you do it is you just keep treating everybody right over and over again and they keep coming back and then they tell their friends and so on and so on. And then you, and then you just grow. But I'll tell you why some of the others didn't make it. So ticket time in the 80s was, in the 70s it was front row and good time and front row center I ended up buying. So that's a, and the, the daughter of the guy who owned Front Row Center has been my assistant, Heidi, for the last 15 years. And she's fantastic. She's fantastic. She's such a wonderful lady. And um, she's more than an assistant, but, you know, she's been, she's great. But ticket time, for example, Ego. He had the best connections at the forum. That's where the Lakers were. He had, and he started making lots and lots of money. So instead of investing it and reinvesting it, he spends a couple hundred thousand dollars on a boardroom. Like what ticket broker needs a 12 person or a 14 person decorated office when people come to meet you? You don't need that as a ticket broker. I wear jeans and shorts to work because it doesn't matter. You said about what I was wearing, but I'm on a podcast. I'm not on TV. <laughs> I have a few suits. I don't have that many, but I have a few. Um, and he then went and spent, and this is back in the 80s, that's a lot of money. Then he spent a half a million dollars on a sign, you know, on Olympic Boulevard, ticket time. That was a lot of money. That's probably now two and a half million dollars. Then if things don't quite go well and you don't, every business has ebbs and flows. If you don't cut back during the hard times, you go under. And he overspent, over-egoed. I know that another one, um, I would say a lot of irresponsibility and a lot of drugs <laughs> for the owners, the ones that I ended up buying. Not Heidi's father, but a couple of the people who are running the business. I think drugs had a lot to do with it and bad decisions. Tell me the difference between a Barry's Tickets, a Tickets Now, a Ticketmaster reselling link on their website and mm -hmm. StubHub. And why do some ticket brokers have the huge service fee on each ticket mm -hmm. and some don't? Okay. So we don't have any. We, we're all in pricing. And honestly, we're debating whether we should go to a service charge. And I'll explain that. And StubHub always had a service charge. 
then they went away from it, did all in pricing and found that their sales went down and then now they have a service charge. And it's always at the end of the sale, at the checkout. And they were trying to do the right thing, but for some reason the public is trained to look at whatever they see first and not pay attention that there might be a 30% service charge then on this guy and the other guy doesn't have a service charge. That's what's so frustrating to me. You yeah. go on the site and you're like, God, look, this right. is really reasonable. And then you press check out right. right at the last moment. And then and you, you run see... out of time because you're a busy guy and yeah. you buy the ticket instead of going to Barry's where there's no service charge and it's all in. So Ticketmaster used to be only primary. That was it. Only primary. There's a service fee that's shared between Ticketmaster and the venue. It's not always nominal. Sometimes it's $20, but sometimes it's $5, $4. When they started, Ticketron, the original story, Ticketron used to charge the box offices $0.25 cents to sell the tickets for them through computers or at the record stores or whatever. And then they would charge the public like $0.75 cents to a dollar. Fred Rosen came in and said, look, close your box office the first day it goes on sale. Let us sell all the tickets and we'll pay you 50 cents a ticket. You don't have to pay us 25, we'll pay you 50. And then they went and started charging the public $4 a ticket and making a fortune. And now they've grown and grown and grown and they're the only game in town. You know, well, pretty much the only game in town. I mean, the US government let them merge with Live Nation, but there are some people who would say that might be an antitrust situation, but AEG does sell tickets on their own, Vera Ticket. Veritix is another one. So there is some competition, but they're the elephant in the room. Ticketmaster is the biggest. And they're actually now in the secondary market as much as they're in the primary market. And now they show their tickets in the same place. The secondary market being tickets now, right? Is that the Well, website? tickets now they purchased. They shouldn't have. They should have purchased me and eight other brokers that I brought to the table. And we could have come up with the technology pretty quickly so you ourselves. you bid together for them. No, they actually... Um, Irving Azoff wasn't with Ticketmaster at the time, came to me. Um, I brought the biggest brokers in the country together and they kicked the tires and it was supposed to be this incredible deal where with Cablevision, who owns the Knicks and Radio City, now the forum they own, it's Mickey, you know, Dolan, the Dolan family and Ticketmaster and AEG. But the guys from Ticketmaster, um, Sean Moriarty was the CEO at the time. Didn't like that idea, thought he could do it himself without buying brokers um, and bought tickets now instead. So we could just get the tickets ourselves and sell them and way overpaid, probably by $250 million. But over time, they've learned how to be in the secondary market and they do a great job of it. And um, they just they do. They have a incredibly comp an incredible competitive advantage over us. But we still have a way of still getting getting our tickets and servicing our clients and we buy from them they buy from us the That's difference it. between them mm -hmm. and stubhub stubhub was two guys getting their masters in business at stanford and it was their project to create a ticket marketplace because there wasn't one and they created a marketplace they don't buy tickets they just put the sellers and the buyers together and they take a fee from each side and that was their plan and it worked and they got private equity money and they grew it and grew it and grew it. And the brokers all were like, Hey, you're doing all the marketing. You're doing the Google search. You're paying all this money and you're selling the tickets for us. And you're only charging us a little bit. And most of the brokers went for it and they grew on our backs. 
Now, then they did a deal with Major League Baseball, a five-year deal for $25 million for the rights to be the exclusive. The only teams that didn't do it, I think, in the beginning were the Red Sox, maybe one other team, but they all joined in. And they did a revenue split with Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball, well, you think about Major League Baseball, it's bigger than any other sport because there's 81 games, sorry, 162 games, sorry, or 161, and they're 40 to 50,000 seat stadiums. Football is bigger for TV and all that, but they only have 10 games. Basketball is a 20,000 arena and they have 82 games, half as much. So think about all those eyeballs for baseball. So they picked the right one. Smaller margins, but more eyeballs. They grew it, and then eBay bought them. And eBay has quite a few eyeballs. So now they're just huge. They're selling billions, but they're still a marketplace. Ticketmaster, who owns tickets now, all the tickets are in the same place. Brokers upload to them. They upload their tickets to StubHub. They upload their tickets to a company in Chicago called Vivid. They upload them to TND, which is an affiliate program. Some have more of a bait-and-switch that's what I call it, where you say, oh, the ticket's $100, and then you have a $35 service charge. So we list our tickets on these different exchanges, and they sell some of our tickets. We sell a lot of our tickets ourselves because we're branded, and we sell a larger percentage of our Los Angeles market tickets. And if you buy Los Angeles tickets directly from us or something we own, you get a better deal because they take our ticket and they mark it up. And usually they market up 20 to 30%. So if you're buying a Laker, a King, a Clipper, and it's my ticket, you're paying more from StubHub. You're paying more from all these places. But when it comes to baseball, and it's a Dodger ticket, there might be a season ticket holder who uploads their ticket to StubHub, and they want less than I want. So even with the 20% markup, you still might, they could be competitive. But it all depends. But most of the time, I'd say 9 out of 10 times, you could do better with us. Got it. Yeah. All right. Explain to our audience the technique of certain artists of holding their first rows of like a thousand seed and yeah. then giving them to companies like yours and then splitting See, huge profits. I don't profits think that them. happens that often anymore. But it has happened. It used to happen. Now they give it to Ticketmaster. But it doesn't happen anymore because they were found out. No. Bruce Springsteen was found out doing it. But that's not why it doesn't happen anymore. Bruce Springsteen tries to act like he's against reselling of tickets and blah, blah, blah. But you go and you wait in line or you try and buy tickets for Bruce Springsteen when it first goes on sale, there's no good seats in there. I mean, you'll be lucky to get a third of the way back as the best seat that goes on sale to the public. So, you know, I don't know what Bruce Springsteen knows because I don't know Bruce Springsteen, but whoever's promoting and managing they know what they're doing and they know what image they're trying to project. So you brought it up, not me. I remember there was a Madonna tour maybe 15 years ago. And there was a, a bro, her best friend had, was friends with this ticket broker back East. And he called me and he sold me all of LA. And I had the first three rows. Uh, I had, I had the, every seat in the first two rows and I had half the tickets in the third row. And I had to pay $2,000 a ticket. And that was a long time ago, but she was so big. And I thought, I'm not going to make a lot, but I'm going to get that customer. And I ended up making about 10% and selling them. But he did that everywhere around the country. So that's what she did back then. Now, Live Nation owns all her tickets. It's a 360 deal. 
Live Nation and Ticketmaster Tell are partners. Tell our audience what a 360 deal is. They handle, they, they pay her a fee. They own her, they promote her. They make the money from the records. They do the marketing. They do everything. And they give her, they, they bought her. They, they bought, give her a flat bought, fee. They give her a flat fee, whatever that is. U2 is under that. I think Jay-Z was under that with Live Nation. But then Irving Azoff started a company called Frontline Management with Barry Diller's backing. And Irving's a brilliant man. He's, he is, you want Pioneer? You should interview him. He's done it all. He's agreed to do it. We just haven't gotten him here yeah, yet. Maybe he, you're the guy to get him here. Irving, you sh Barry's a great guy, and you're so much more charming, and you have such better stories than me. Including, I mean, his 60th birthday, just a small little tidbit, it was at Mountasia in Valencia, which is they have a ferals and, and a batting cage and racing car, you know, the bumper cars and all that. It was a really cool place. That's where he had his 60th birthday, and I'm sitting right near him. Verdine from Earth, Wind, and Fire is right at my table. I mean, you could sit anywhere in the place. I think I was eating my ice cream. And all of a sudden, Joe Walsh comes in and he has a chimpanzee on his head. And that was his gift to Irving. A so, chimpanzee. A chimpanzee. But Joe Walsh comes there. You know, Irving has seen and done everything. And he knows everything about the tickets. And he even learned a little from me. But I have a lot of respect for him. He's, he is the biggest pioneer of, in the, I think, in the, in the, music industry and now he runs you know he controls a lot he has a part owner of the forum he does lots of things all right so six degrees of separation i'm going to mention some names or things or whatever and i want you to make a comment on them or anything you know maybe a quick story something that you thought kobe bryant hardest working player ever got it most intense the los angeles rams the new team in town and i'm excited for it how's that going to change your business I don't know yet. Um, the first three years at the Coliseum, we'll get as many good seats as we can, and we'll try and make money. Once the personal seat licenses come, I don't know what's going to happen because they're expensive. And as an investor, reseller, it might take too long to, to recoup our, our money. Championship boxing versus UFC. I like boxing way more, other than maybe Ronda Rousey. Um, and I would say there's too, for me with the UFC, there's too much on the ground holding. You know, I like the, the, the punching and the moving and I'm a much bigger boxing fan. And I think boxing is actually growing, growing back. I mean, it's on public TV, on CBS now. There's more fights. I think it's going to come back. We still need a great heavyweight, but I think it's going to come back. The kiss cam. Best form of advertising in, in, a, in an arena, period. Everybody looks at it. And I've been lucky enough to, with the sponsorship of the Kings, the LA Kings and the Clippers with the Kings, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson were at a game and they got on camera and they hammed it up. And it ended up being on Good Morning America, Good Morning Miami, Good Morning New York. It just went viral. We got two and a half million click-throughs. It was amazing. We had Kobe Bryant on the kiss cam with his daughter once. And then the most recent one, which was the biggest one. And everybody knows who, everybody who's an NBA fan knows that DeAndre Jordan almost went to play for Mark Cuban with the Dallas Mavericks. And then the whole team came out and flew out to Houston and convinced DeAndre, even after he gave his word to Mark Cuban, that he was going to come to stay with the Clippers. DeAndre instigated it by saying that he really wanted to stay. 
and it became a little feud between the Clippers and the Mavericks and Mark Cuban and Steve Ballmer and Doc Rivers. And fortunately for me, the first game of the season, home, and I, which the team that I'm a sponsor of and I have the Kiss Cam is the Clippers. And they were playing the Dallas Mavericks first game of the season. And the Clippers come up with something clever and they do a split screen with Steve Ballmer and Mark Cuban. And Mark looks up and is like a little uncomfortable. And Steve Ballmer puckers his lips and goes, to Cuban. So Cuban goes, you know, kind of shrugs and kisses him back and a full minute of them looking at each other and the ice melting. And it was just unbelievable to, you know, in game. And then it became the front page of ESPN.com, the front page of yahoo.com. Again, good morning, America, all the sports stations. It was just, and Barry's tickets in the background, just like Barry's tickets in the background because we sponsor the kiss cam. So we were very lucky. That was nice. That was good national advertising. Your biggest disappointment in your business and how you used it to move to the next level? Well, I would probably say when I was sued by Ticketmaster because on the front page of the calendar section, Chuck Phillips wrote an article and made it seem like it was criminal and it was on the city attorney's desk, which scared the heck out of me because I never even, I never had even a misdemeanor ever. I still haven't ever had a misdemeanor. And this wasn't criminal. It was civil, but he wrote it wrong. And, um, and I was in this big lawsuit with them. And I think just it gave me national attention. And there's some truth to be said that any publicity is good publicity. And I just kept working and working. I got well known in the broker community throughout the US. And I think it helped us grow. At the end of the day, it was tra traumatic. It was scary. It was, you know, I thought I was going to lose everything potentially because you're, you know, the legal system, you just never know. But, you know, all the things that they didn't like about what, ha you know, and I, and quite frankly, somebody approached me to sell me tickets and I didn't know he worked for Ticketmaster. I had no idea. And they used me as an example. And he, I'm sure he was selling to other people too. Your proudest moment in business. Wow. I don't know if there's just one moment. There's times where, okay, Clippers. I'll give you an example of Clippers. And it's not a moment. It's a decision. So when everybody was, oh, Donald Sterling's the owner of this team. He'll never spend money. It's terrible. I was building up inventory and sticking with them and became friendly with some of the new coaches. And I saw a change in Donald Sterling and the fact that he was willing to spend money on players now. And he offered Ray Allen a max deal. He didn't take it. He offered Kobe Bryant and Kobe Bryant. When Mike Dunleavy was coaching, Kobe Bryant, they made a jersey for him. They thought Kobe was coming to the Clippers. So I knew all this. I became a sponsor of the team. I got to be in the draft room when Sterling was the owner. And I saw a change in what he was doing. So I heavily invested in that team. Even though they couldn't paid sell off. any tickets when you were doing it. Right. You the but they in. started to. I believed in it and I built it up. And I remember at the time, my biggest competitor, the first time when maybe it was when they drafted Blake or maybe it was when they did that, they got Chris Paul. But I remember Harris Rossner VIP tickets calling me up and saying, you know, kid, I got to take my hat off to you. So maybe that decision, but nothing. I don't know if there's any one thing because every day we try and do the right thing. Awesome. Last question. 
what advice do you have for the young person out there who's growing up in a Tarzana somewhere across the world that get to the next level and have the kind of career okay. you have? So I'm going to say two things. One, you have to think, if you're going to be a businessman, you have to think of what does the consumer need or want and how can I provide it to them? And then you have to outwork everybody. Or, if, I mean, you could get lucky. There's people who are just brilliant and they created an app, but you can't sit out there and think, oh, I'm going to create that one app. You have to work. You have to go to work every day and you have to build and build and build. So many actors will say, you know, oh, I, everybody thinks, oh, they became an over, overnight sensation, but they became an overnight sensation after working their craft for 30 years. I remember, you know, the most interesting man in the world, Jonathan Goldschmidt. And I met him at Monty's because the Pump Brothers invited him for a Super Bowl event. And everybody wanted to, there was all these athletes. There was Dave Winfield there. There was these Hall of Fame athletes there. And everybody wanted to meet this guy. And this was his first and biggest gig at 70 years old, becoming the most interesting man in the world. And oh, he's an overnight sensation? No, he was an actor for 40, 50 years. And it built. Barry's tickets didn't get on the map overnight. We just kept plugging away, going to work, working 80 hours a week for 25 years. And then, oh, all of a sudden, oh, we're branded. Oh, yeah, everybody's heard of us. But it was going to work every day. Mark Cuban goes to work every day. Elon Musk goes to work every day. I mean, I'm not a genius like Elon Musk, but that's all I know how to do it. You just have to recognize the demand, have an idea how to fill it, and then do it. Don't just think about it. Do it. Barry. My God. Incredible. Thank you so much. This is Thank fantastic. Thank you. This was fun. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Van Bernard from Southport, Connecticut. Congratulations, Van. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Kelly D, July 19th, 2013. Heading is nothing quite like this five stars. It reads, I've loved listening to Barry Katz on more stories and had wished for a while that there was a way to hear more from him. Lo and behold, the first episode does not disappoint. Beyond being entertaining, which he and guest Doug Herzog are, Mr. Katz's passion to help those who are just starting in the entertainment industry shines through, as it always has on more stories. I honestly haven't found anything quite like this out there. 
a fantastic insider's look at how the entertainment industry works, but with an accessibility that is both refreshing and inspiring. Looking forward to many episodes to come. Well, thank you so much, Kelly D. Congratulations. And as always, this is Industry Standard, and if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.